Why do we exist? Were we created with a purpose? Or are we just here by chance? What are we to believe about life, faith, and worldview? Welcome to The Universe Next Door, focusing on answers to the questions we all consider. The Universe Next Door is supported by the C.S. Lewis Society, Trinity College of Florida, and supported by gifts from listeners just like you. Discover more resources and continue the conversation at apologetics.org. And now, your host, the research professor of Bible and theology at Trinity College of Florida, author and speaker, Dr. Tom Woodward. Wow. I can't help but think what a great musical intro that is. I don't think I've ever started our program that way. No, maybe once. <laughs> maybe once. It's well, tempting. anyway, that's Handel. You know, that's one of the great albums. Maybe we should actually put that on the front of our homepage at apologetics.org yeah. so that everybody knows. I think you have a copy of that CD, don't you? Yeah, one episode, we'll just play the whole CD straight through. <laughs> They'll thank us wild. later. <laughs> yeah. They'll say, what happened to the universe next door? We should have a, a little disclaimer <laughs> that comes on every three minutes. You're listening to the musical version of the universe next door. Yeah. The CD you're listening to is Handel's Music for the Royal Fireworks and an affiliated suite. Yeah, it's good stuff. But anyway, yeah, it is such a blessing to be able to sort of hang out with our wonderful listening audience there by podcast. And, of course, those who listen in, you know, whether it be Florida, New York, New Jersey, Maryland, Ohio, Kansas, West Coast, East Coast, North Coast, South Coast, wherever you are, we love you. We appreciate you. You're awesome, amazing, encouraging. Thank you for sending those cards and letters and emails and and text messages and really, really, we would love to hear from you. Let me say that again. We really would love to hear from you. Nick and I would, right? Oh, absolutely. Nick Shalna, and S-H-A-L-N-A is the way you spell his last name. I hope it's okay to divulge your it's last Lithuanian. Name. Lithuanian, really? Uh, one of the few. I didn't know that. Yeah. We need to get a mission trip, an apologetics mission to Lithuania. What do you think? Oh, that would be great. Uh, Let's talk about that and pray about it. So uh, my my last name, of course, Woodward, is uh, related to the English background where we were wardens of the wood. Uh, My uh, my dad said we used to be forest rangers. Wow. (laughs) (laughs) Somewhere up there, I don't know, in the Midlands (laughs) of England. Yeah, so the Sherwood Forest. Yeah, maybe uh, up there with... Robin Hood. Anyway, yeah. so what we're wanting to do today is follow up. We started last week a kind of a uh, kind of engaging in the thought of what does it mean to be on an apologetics adventure? And we quoted a couple lines from the beginning of The Hobbit. You know, it's a great book, you know, the Tolkien book which as it were sets up, it kind of gives the background, uh, the the backstory, the prequel for the Lord of the Rings. Now, uh, I hope I don't shock and, and maybe enrage anybody, but I have I have yet to read the Lord of the Rings. Did <laughs> you hear? I, I went down to sotto voce, as they say in Italian. I whispered. I, I haven't read it either. <laughs> the Lord of the Rings? No, never read it. Oh, so okay. the movies. Okay. Oh, so you've not you've neither read the Hobbit read nor the Lord of the Rings. Okay. <laughs> read any of so them. we are read uh, Narnia. We're we're Tolkien challenged. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, I'm okay. I've read The Hobbit, and I loved it, by the way. And I, and I mentioned last week that uh, my dear colleague uh, and former student uh, graduated a year ago, valedictorian, um, and Griffin Foxworth uh, can be seen doing our demo of the DNA model. You can just catch him at DNA and Beyond, spell out the word and, org. 
And that uh, a wonderful uh, former student, uh, now a local uh, associate minister of a church here in Tampa Bay, uh, is really the Hobbit expert in my life because he's read The Hobbit. I think he's done it 14 times now. Wow. He, he's read it every year since he was in the fifth <coughs> grade. And so I think that's, I, I wonder if that's a world record. But uh, I think he should end, enter the world sweepstakes for that one. But he got me interested in Tolkien more than ever. And of course, I got him more and more interested in C.S. Lewis. And we actually were able to go on a C.S. Lewis tour. And one of the most uh, funny moments was when Alistair McGrath, of course, had written this book. It's a biography of C.S. Lewis. And, and it says something, some things in there that are not very complimentary about uh, Joy Gresham. You know, Lewis married Joy Gresham. Uh, in the uh, mid-50s, originally uh, married her just legally to keep her from being deported from England, and then he married her uh, in the eyes of the church as well when she was dying of bone cancer. Uh, That story, of course, is told in the movie uh, Shadowlands, in which uh, we we can see the whole story played out by Deborah Winger, who plays the part of Joy Gresham again. And then, of course, Anthony Hopkins, the world-renowned uh, actor, plays the part of C.S. Lewis himself. And uh, it's an amazing, it's an amazing story. And so when Alistair McGrath uh, wrote his biography, he, he, he was basically presenting d- uh, the, the story of Joy Gresham as if she was seeing Lewis as a source of, well, you know, financial gain. Uh, I guess the phrase gold digger uh, is a popular way of uh, using that. And but her her former husband, you know, had already they'd already been divorced. He was unfaithful uh, and they'd moved from America to England. Uh, but the two, um, Joy and, and, and Jack or C.S. Lewis, had become great friends. They were both, of course, uh, literary minded people. She had won a national uh, poetry award in the States and had been converted to Christ uh, reading the writings of C.S. Lewis. And so. The, the things that were said uh, literally uh, about her in that book were not very complimentary. But I, I, I was not really fully aware of that background and, and the depth of the uh, details of that particular part of, of the commentary. And so as Griffin Foxworth was sitting at a, at a lecture at Lewis's home in, in Oxford, England, we were sitting in the very room where Doug Gresham, now in his early 70s, was telling the stories of growing up with C.S. Lewis wow. in our C.S. Lewis tour of uh, 2015. And and Griffin Foxworth reached into his backpack to pull out the Alistair McGrath book so it could be um, you know, signed by Doug Gresham. And at that very moment, he said, well, you know, some of you may have heard of the Alistair McGrath book. And he says, he says, it's a piece of garbage and it should be consigned to the flames. Oh, boy, good timing. <laughs> <laughs> and so Griffin took his hand and slid the book back yeah. into his backpack. Oh, straight from the horse's mouth. <laughs> That's wow. right. So he did not have <laughs> Doug Gresham sign that book after all. But he did not consign it to the flames. He'd think it's sitting on his, his shelf at home. <laughs> <laughs> Unsigned. Yeah, that's right. Unsigned. So, but we had a grand time. And, and we, I, what I would say is that, you know, in our experience of studying, you know, The Hobbit, uh, my, my, my reading of The Hobbit at the uh, urging of, of Griffin and, and then his uh, reading of C.S. Lewis uh, in our course here that he took in, I think it was 2017. Uh, we had such a riotous, wonderful adventure together. And that's the word that comes out of the beginning of The Hobbit book. 
uh, Gandalf, the wizard, is in, imploring, or is it, the word is really inviting. He, it's, it's kind of a forceful uh, exhortation, kind of inviting. He says, I, I want you to go on to an adventure with me. It's, it's hard to find people to go on an adventure. And then, of course, <laughs> little Bilbo Baggins says, yeah, adventures are nasty, disturbing things, make you late for dinner. No wonder no one wants to go on an adventure. <laughs> and and so, yes, they might make you late for dinner. Yes, they can be disturbing and maybe even nasty at times. But what I tried to do last week is to picture the adventure of apologetics as as nothing less than the most exhilarating, exciting, spectacular, amazing, marvelous adventure that you could ever have. Because it's the adventure of Christ. And to serve and love Christ in the 21st century, where you're wandering through an amazing variety of worldviews, of what the Germans call varieties of Weltanschauung. That's the the German word for worldview. Weltanschauung. And what does that mean? It means a set of, of beliefs and assumptions about reality, including God, whether there is God or there is no God, and if there is God, what kind of God he is, and whether there is a, a, a trio of persons within one God, as we say in in the Christian view, the mere Christianity view of C.S. Lewis, which would embrace you know the, the, the Greek Orthodox, the Catholic, and the Protestant. All three share that, that uh, three in one. And so all of those world views are in competition and are more intensely in competition now than ever. And it's at this very moment in world history that it is reaching a crescendo in which many of the voices are barking out, are shouting, almost like screeching, we have the proof. We have the ultimate evidence. And these are some called, sometimes called dangerous ideas. Darwin's dangerous idea, according to Daniel Dennett, a philosopher who's now retired, one of the four horsemen of the new atheism, has said, you know, uh, in writing this book, Darwin's dangerous idea, Darwin's idea of natural selection as the crafter of all wonders of the biological world It is a dangerous idea because it explains absolutely everything. Everything in the world, including morality, including not only genes and cells and tissues and organs, even the human brain. It explains consciousness. It explains the fact that you're hearing this broadcast today. Darwin's theory, natural selection of random mutations, explains absolutely everything. Oh, wow. If that be true, then he, he, he compares it with a sulfuric acid that, that eats through any other uh, proposed idea or concept or truth and leaves in its wake a completely revolutionized worldview. And then we have other people who have suggested, well, Darwin's dangerous idea is not so dangerous because it has now been discredited. It's been disproven. That's where I would come in and say that the intelligent design movement has actually shown that there is incredible 
wave, it is an incredible cresting tsunami of evidence that has come in against the claims of Darwinism and that the claims of neo-Darwinism, specifically that random mutation of, uh, you know, of DNA then selected by natural selection, that now is in a state of chaos, breakdown, collapse. It is unraveling. It is becoming unglued. It is almost like the sulfuric acid of truth is eating away at Darwinism. You know, the metaphor is switched. Yeah. And so what I'm trying to bring out is that there are many ideas out there that contend to be the ultimate answer, including the most dangerous idea for the last 2,000 years for, for atheism is the idea that not only has God shown himself as real, but God has now spoken himself into the human race. The word became flesh. So God not only is real, but he is given decisive evidence of himself by penetrating humanity, by penetrating history, by sticking his thumb, or you might think of God's poked his finger into human history, not just as a random act, kind of a loosey-goosey, well, maybe I'll just jump in. No, as a very precise, purposeful, and, and from eternity past, planned entry point. It's like Normandy invasion, you know, planned by Dwight Eisenhower and those other generals, the British and the French and whatever, all those generals in England. And at the right moment, boom, comes the entry point. And then, you know, in June of, of 1944, they make their move. And then the rest is history. The tide is turned back. The Nazi grip on Western Europe is, is broken and victory and, and liberty comes at long last. And so that's what we're talking about is the historical evidence. The scientific reality is validated at one level. The historical evidence is validated in a different arena, in a different way. You might say at a different level. So let's take a look at some of these dangerous ideas and even ask a dangerous question. So as we enter danger zone, okay, the, um, the edge, you know, when you get close to the Grand Canyon, you want to make sure you're not getting too close to the edge, right? And you're in danger of falling. So as we get into these issues of apologetics, I want to really bring out the ultimate, what I, what I consider for anybody in digging deep into worldview questions, the ultimate dangerous question, and I'll put it in general terms first, and then I'll maybe apply it to both sides particularly. The ultimate dangerous question, which I had to consider when I was a freshman in college, and, and I did wrestle with this for at least six months, closer to nine months, I'd say, and that is, have I made a major error in s starting down the path of a wrong worldview? Was I tricked? Not that somebody was necessarily tricking me, but did I trick myself? Did I kind of miss something as I headed down my agnostic, in my case, worldview? When I rejected Christianity quietly as a senior in high school, really began my sophomore year, but by the junior year, 
I was moving that direction pretty rapidly. And by my senior year, I didn't, never told my parents. I didn't want to upset them. You know, I was just kind of, I was going to church with them. You know, I would stand and sing the hymns with them, bow in prayer, I suppose. Yeah, just my own private thought world is where I was saying, no, I don't think I believe in miracles. After all, I'm scientific. You know, this is the 1960s, not the, you know, 1850s or whatever, before Darwin's book was published. Darwin's uh, Origin of Species came out in 1859. I'm, I'm modern, you know. I'm evolutionized. And so, as I was uh, thinking through these things and then headed off, uh, I thought I had the academic world pretty much at my feet, at the top of my class in high school, uh, entering that uh, world of, uh, you know, academics at Princeton University with uh, 800 other, you know, students. Um, I was confronted with, the, for the first time, the, the possibility that really there was a case for God that could be made a credible case in a, in a respectful academic environment. And I had never, ever, ever once heard a case made for creation that God had left marks, those telltale indicators, clues, that um, would show that evolutionary theory could not not just was not, but could not even possibly be true based on what we know from the, for example, fossil evidence. If Darwin's theory were true, I'll just go ahead and just give the particulars in this one case. If Darwin's theory were true, then we should be able to find in the evidence of paleontology, the evidence of fossil series, successions through the layers, through the strata from the Cambrian all the way through up, all the way through the most most recent era, Pleistocene, which by the way goes from two and a half million down to about eleven thousand years ago. That's the Ice Age. So from the Cambrian all the way up through the Pleistocene, we should see just an overwhelming abundance, or at least a moderate indicator, of transitions, as this step by tiny step, in, in incremental change is happening. So what we're doing is we're trying to here see that there is a dangerous question. And the dangerous question ultimately is, and for, let's say, even a Christian sometimes is going to ask himself or herself, which I did as a young Christian uh, when I entered that Christian bookstore downtown Denver when I was training in photo intelligence I mentioned last week. I was at that point, I wasn't like, you know, in a state of doubt. I was just wondering, you know, well, my life has changed. I've been going to church. I believe in Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior, but is it just psychological? You know, is there, are there really good facts to support, you know, what I'm doing and what I'm thinking? And that's when I, I fell in love. As a Christian, I fell in love with apologetics, even deeper as a Christian, because that was where I wanted further grounding for my faith. And so what I would say is that we see this ultimate dangerous question is where we're asking, do we know for sure that our worldview is grounded on truth? And that's the ultimate dangerous question. Is our foundation solid? Is it true? Uh, The same guy who wrote The Universe Next Door wrote um, another book. Why should anyone believe anything at all? 
That's an interesting question, isn't it? Yeah. Why should anyone believe anything at all? Wow. He actually gave a talk like that hundreds of times on different campuses, and it really attracted a lot of students. And uh, they said, wow, what's it? why should anyone believe anything at all? And the ultimate answer is it's not sociological because my friends believe it or uh, emotional because it makes me feel good to believe it. Um, it's not, you know, practical. You know, practical uh, fun things happen to me because I believe it. Ultimately, you believe it because it happens to be true. And that's where, um, you know, C.S. Lewis's essay, Man or Rabbit, one of my all-time favorite short writings by C.S. Lewis, he says, ultimately, man is a truth-loving creature. And so the ultimate dangerous question, I love it, the dangerous question, danger, Will Robinson, the dangerous question for all of us that we have to face, or at least implicitly have faced already and, and move beyond is, is our worldview true? And can we, can we defend it as true? If someone challenges us, are we flat-footed? Is our mouth sealed? Is it just, are we silent? How do we know that it's true? And can we explain to an honest inquirer from another faith worldview um, that it is true? So then there are these uh, dangerous ideas. We mentioned already Daniel Dennett. I'm just going to surface these things, and we can deal with them periodically in the coming um, you know, weeks as we're working through uh, for the next about four weeks, we're going to be working through a series of these dangerous ideas and asking again periodically from a different vantage point the dangerous question, how do we know that our worldview is on good grounding? How do we know that it's true? And we're bringing in C.S. Lewis himself quite a bit, but also a, a lot of modern C.S. Lewis figures who have actually asked that question. Lewis asked it as, as an atheist, by the way, over a period of 20 years. He asked the dangerous question, how do I know that my atheism is true? Ultimately, it was asking that question that led him to, to change. Tolkien had something to do about that, Nick Schauner. I think you know that. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So <laughs> it was one dark night at the path just outside Maldon College there in Oxford, and the two of them were discussing it, and we'll get into that amazing late-night walk, uh, walk and talk that they had. Uh, there just outside the college where, where Lewis was teaching. So um, I just want to bring out, because we have about a minute left, Victor Reppert. Uh, you, any of you guys that really are, are Lewis junkies like I am, C.S. Lewis fans, you might want to, his book, I don't, I'm not sure if it's in print, but I'm sure you can find a good used copy probably through Amazon. His book uh, is C.S. Lewis's Dangerous Idea. Okay, so Daniel Dennett, wrote the book Darwin's Dangerous Idea. We'll, we'll actually do a little bit more work with that book in our series. Uh, we're, ta- we're calling it Danger Zone, Dangerous Ideas, Dangerous Questions. And so um, Bernard Ackworth, of course, um, is a key figure uh, in, in, in this whole process because he got Lewis um, asking uh, a dangerous question, and that is, could Darwinism be false? He was asking Lewis, even as a Christian, is it okay to doubt Darwin? And then Darwin's ultimate dangerous uh, idea was, could it be that thought, reason, thinking, clear thinking itself is how we know that God exists? Wow, that's a dangerous question and a dangerous idea. Well, thank you for joining us here on Danger Zone, better known as the universe next door. See you back here next week. Welcome to the world of scientific discovery. I'm Jim Huta, and it's been my privilege to practice as a perinatal cardiologist for over 35 years, looking at the fetal heart as it develops in utero before the baby is born. 
We now know that the fetal heart development is controlled by DNA, but more importantly, there's a whole new code in a new area called epigenetics. Methyl tags, which are the signals or control molecules for the development of the fetal heart. Also, check out the dynamic colored DNA model. This is the only existing model that includes the DNA methylation molecules. You'll see methylation tags which attach to various portions of the DNA in order to control how it does its job. In our website, we hope to expose you to new advances in this area of epigenetics in our epigenetics section. Come and join us today at DNA and Beyond. You've been listening to The Universe Next Door with Dr. Tom Woodward, sponsored by the C.S. Lewis Society and Trinity College of Florida and supported through the gifts of listeners just like you. To gather resources, continue the conversation, and support The Universe Next Door with your financial gifts, go to apologetics.org. That's apologetics.org. And join us again next time as we continue to seek the truth about life, faith, and worldview in The Universe Next Door.